Our scripture reading is Jeremiah 17, if you wish to turn there. Jeremiah 17, verses 1 through 13. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the, mount- on the mountains in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool." A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This morning, we are beginning a series of, uh, this will be the first of eight sermons, and the remaining seven will focus on uh, what throughout church history has been regarded as the seven deadly sins. These individual sins are are regarded as uh, kind of the root sins of all of our struggles and issues with our brokenness. Our goal in this is uh, not merely to be beat up, although hopefully we will be beat up a little bit, but our goal is also then to consider that sin is a parasite that twists what is good and right. And so in each of these seven deadly sins um, is what I call a righteous alter ego, Meaning that if we allow the gospel to change us, the human nature that brings about these sins can also bring about righteousness. So as God transforms us and he turns our desires away from ourself, then these areas of brokenness can become areas of righteousness. 
But to begin with, I, I thought it would be good for us to spend some time considering the reality of sin. Before we go into these individual ones and attempt to consider them, I thought it would be good for us to understand the realities of sin. And so our text this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. We'll be looking uh, specifically at a couple verses in the middle, but I thought it's good for us to get the context here. So I'll begin by reading Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 26. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though. Everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with sin? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. One of the problems with jumping into Romans is that Romans really is one long treatise, and so we're kind of jumping into some rather complex arguments. The Apostle Paul is speaking about the Jewish nation and what God has given them by His presence uh, throughout time. What God has given them and that they were the bearers of the law. And he admits that there is value to that. Our primary focus here this morning is going to be, though, on verses 9 through 18. A doctor enters your hospital room, and he reveals a diagnosis. Some of you have lived this. I have not. His diagnosis reveals that you have a growth that appears to be cancerous. He does not know how far it has spread, and he doesn't know what type it is, so he's going to send you for further tests to understand the type of cancer, and to understand what type of treatment. The doctor needs to know how bad it really is. To set the course of healing action, the doctor needs to know the full extent of the sickness. Now, a careless or a false doctor could act foolishly And he could overlook some signs. He could try to make you believe that it's really not that bad. He could assure you that your problem is rather benign and you wouldn't have to go through too much suffering to be healthy again. This morning, we have a grave task. Every single one of our hearts has a growth. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say that it has a fatal disease, one in which has no human cure. We are members of the race of Adam, and we bear the nature of sin. This is not merely a defect in us that needs addressing so our lives can be better. This is not merely a condition that we need to put some salve on to fix. Our sin separates us from God and makes us subjects of God's wrath. And this morning, I hope 
that the Spirit of God would help each of us to see the true diagnosis of our own hearts. You see, unless we know the truth, unless we understand the full extent of our problem, we will be completely and wholly unsuccessful at rightly seeking the healing necessary. If we trivialize our sin, we trivialize Jesus. If we deny sinfulness, we deny the need for a Savior. J.C. Rao states in his book, Holiness, He who wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. Wrong views of holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. And the plain truth is that a right understanding of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. And so if we are going to understand our condition, if we are going to understand what is necessary, we must understand what is broken and how bad. Before we dive into our passage, let us first consider what righteousness is. And I believe righteousness can be defined as obedience that seeks God's glory and the success of his kingdom and flows from faith in God and love towards God. And so we have a bit of a triplet. We have obedience. And that obedience seeks the glory of God. And that obedience is lived out in faith and love. And these three must be present in all of our actions for us to consider them righteousness. And so one may obey the moral law, but he may do so for his own glory and for him that is sin. One may declare his action to be for God's glory, but disobey. And one may declare his faith in God, but if he seeks his own renown, he remains sinful. Sin, then, is any action that does not proceed from all three of these requirements. Sin is anything that is disobedient. Is that anything that seeks to glorify something other than God and something that proceeds from something other than love or faith? In a sense, this passage in Romans 3 is the doctor's divine diagnosis of the extent of our sin. The first idea that we see here in this passage is that sin is universal. And the Apostle Paul uses a number of different ways to cage that. The first we see in verse 9, that sin is beyond race. He remarks that both the Jew and the Gentile, both those who have grown up in the family of God and those who have grown up outside of the family of God. 
And so we cannot look to our race to find merit. We cannot look to our heritage to find merit. We cannot look at others and find defects due to their race or heritage. Even God's chosen people were put in the same class as the Gentiles. All are under sin. Secondly, it's beyond understanding. It's universal because none of us truly understand in the way that God understands. In verse 11, it's beyond intentions. There's not a one of us that seeks God rightly and completely. In verse 13, it's beyond language. He uses the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. It's beyond our declaring. In verse 19 to 20, it's beyond law-keeping. God regards our work as feet swift to shed blood, a path leading to ruin and misery and out of the path to peace. If we believe that by law-keeping we will attain freedom from our sin, God has had some fairly harsh things to say about that. In other words, sin is universal. None of us have an exemption. Every single one of us has the same diagnosis, that we are unrighteous and that we are born in sin. I think as a side note, some have taken offense to to Christians who refer to themselves as sinners. And I believe that we should qualify that to say that we are sinners saved by grace, but that it's probably good that we refer to ourselves as sinners. We should never get to a place where we look at ourselves and say, righteous. We should never get to a place where we examine ourselves and say, you're pretty righteous. The only claim that the people of God have to righteousness is in the holy, perfect, and blameless Son of Jesus, Son of God, Jesus Christ. Only hidden in Him can we make any claim of righteousness. Verse 27 says, Then what becomes of our boasting? The Apostle Paul was saying that we have nothing to boast upon. We cannot look at ourselves, we cannot look at our heritage, we cannot look at anything within us and say, I am now righteous. Our only claim of righteousness is in the cross of Christ. But absorbing this name of sinner and being willing to understand that I am a sinner is not an excuse to wallow in our sin. It's an acknowledgement that even our best and most righteous action is affected by the nature of sin that dwells in every single one of us. And so, first of all, we see that sin is universal. Second, we see that sin takes three forms. And we've referred to these three forms earlier, but we see them here in our passage. 
Sin disobeys. It refuses to fear God. And it steals God's glory. And so our passage says that no one is righteous. No one has rightly and completely obeyed God's law. And so, first of all, sin says that we fail to keep God's moral law. We fail to live according to the way that He has designed us to live. Secondly, it says that no one fears God in that we fail to recognize God for who He is. This idea of fear is not like I'm afraid of the dark or I'm afraid of a big brown bear, but it's that I have a right understanding of the nature of God. And I regard Him in that. So again... Fear is something that comes upon us when we realize there's something greater than us. Often we don't fear God because we don't understand Him. We don't recognize Him for who He is. If we were to have a dangerous animal in the room, we would say that someone would be foolish to just walk right up and start petting that animal. Because if they would do so, they would betray their lack of understanding of the nature of that animal. In the same way, we have particular understandings for who God is. And when we fail to recognize Him for who He truly is, we fail to fear Him. And thirdly, it steals God's glory. All have fallen short of God's glory. All have failed to give God his rightful place. And in exchange, we've all attempted to glorify ourselves. It is the original sin that Adam and Eve committed to prefer their own glory, to prefer their own righteousness, to prefer their own way. And I think we all have to admit that this is our nature as well. We like to do things the way we like to do them. We like to make much of ourselves, and in doing so, we steal God's glory. So sin is universal. Sin takes the form of disobedience, of misunderstanding God, and of stealing His glory. And thirdly then, sin only has one means of justification. Sin only has one means of justification. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You and I can stand before God righteous 
only in the blood of Jesus. We cannot obey enough to earn it. We cannot learn or understand God enough to earn it. We cannot talk our way out of it, and we cannot seek enough to find it. No human action can ever bring about salvation. Only the gift of faith can bring about a knowledge of salvation. Only the act of God in sending His Son as our substitute can deliver us from this body of sin. As Romans 5.8 declares, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sin only has one means of justification, and it is a God who came in human form and lived perfectly. He obeyed entirely. He did so for the glory of God. And he did so with a right understanding of who God is. And he did all three of those perfectly. As a result of the gospel, as a result of Christ redeeming us, we are now enabled to see God for who he is. We are now enabled to fear him in his rightful being. And the result of this as it concerns our sin is that sin must be mortified. Sin must be countered. It must be put to death. The rest of, of the epistles are quite clear on this. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The language that the Apostle Paul uses here regarding our sin is, is extreme. Put to death. The wrath of God is coming. Galatians 5 takes it even a step further. It recommends a type of death for our sin. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we are in Christ, if Christ has redeemed us, then, then we're on the path of crucifixion. It's not a mere strangling of our sin. It's the worst possible means of death. Romans 13, uh, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so this putting on of Christ demands this putting off and putting to death of sin. We see this as well in Ephesians 4, 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Sin must be mortified. It must be one of the primary emphases in our life. The 
Let us return to the hospital room. The doctor's diagnosis has been confirmed. You have a cancerous growth that will take your life without drastic effort. There will be treatment. There will be chemotherapy. There will be surgery. There will be suffering. They will do everything they can to remove and kill this growth. There are no chances taken. Everything that looks and acts like cancer is either removed or pounded by radiation and chemo. It must be put to death. What about you and what about me? Is this understanding of sin merely theoretical? Is it reserved for the the sinner people that are like not us? Do we understand that this is our diagnosis? This is our heart. Do we understand the great danger every single one of our hearts is in if we are not actively putting to death the brokenness that is in us? Or do we think that sin is something to muck about in, to tolerate a little bit here and a little bit there? Well, you put off your dealing with your sin for a later time, that actually may never come around. And again, quite often, we're quite aware of everyone else's sin, especially those that are close to us. We know their sins very well, and we're quite apt at reminding them of their sins, but are we we as familiar with our own? Have we, like J.C. Rowell said, gone deep, plumbed the depths of the brokenness of our heart so we can know its true condition. In your recognition, in your observing of your own heart, as the cancer doctor, are you willing to do whatever it takes? The real question for us to consider is, do we consider our sin as seriously as God did? Because God does take sin seriously. So seriously, in fact, that it brings death. Always. All sin and every sin will result in death. Either the sinner will die in punishment for his sins, alienated from God, or Jesus will bear that sin on the cross. But someone will die for every sin. Do you take sin as seriously as God does? Again, I said in the introduction that we have some heavy work. And I hope that each of us is willing to look at the recesses of our heart 
to ask God what is there, to ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light within us and help us to see where we are wrong. That way we may put it to death. And so amidst the bad news is good news. The good news of the gospel is for each of us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is a willing and sufficient Savior. He is the perfect law keeper. He is the perfect reflector of God's glory. He is the perfect representation of faith and love. Everything that Romans 3 says that you and I cannot do, Jesus has done completely and fully. Jesus obeyed God for the glory of God and in love for his Father. Each of us have access to that presence as we declare our faith in God, as we put to death our sin, as we seek to live in faith and love, we don't do so alone. We do so with the very presence that obeyed fully. This morning, I'd like us to take a moment of silence to consider. And I don't think now's a time to try to dive deep, but maybe to consider this question. Have I, have we taken seriously the realities of our sin? Or is it like the diagnosis that we don't want to read and so we just keep it in the book and we never get it out and we never look at it? Is it something that is real and present with us? So let's spend a moment in silence and then um, I will pray and then we'll have a song. Let us come before the Lord and search our hearts. Father, this morning in this passage, we have seen where your word speaks some very uncomfortable things about us. <coughs> things about our own hearts that we often would rather avoid. Understandings that we'd rather not discover. Father, help us each to consider our own hearts. 
I pray that your spirit would shine into my heart, into our heart, and to show us by your grace the brokenness that needs to be put to death. And Father, in seeing that brokenness, may we cling to Christ. And in the power of his presence, in the power of the presence of the Spirit, would we strive daily, hourly, against the brokenness that is within each of us. Father, that by this we may walk in righteousness, that we may put on the character that you so clearly display in yourself, in your law. Father, be present with us. Save us from ourselves. Do so, Father, for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.